You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, Lanyap Podcast with Stokes Family Office. This is Doug Stokes joined with Greg here. It is uh, one day before halfway mark uh, for 2023. It's been a really interesting start to the year and a little bit of a reprieve from sort of the horrible uh, you know, daily grind of 2022. Um, I want to start really with a recap of uh, what's occurred so far in 2023 and we can prognosticate as to what 20, the remainder of 2023 is going to look like for the back half of the year. Uh, a couple things really that occurred so far this year, and we, one of them we talked about uh, last week. At, as the year began, there was this um, this competing ideology around uh, a continued decline post-2022 that interest, rates, interest rate hikes would lead to something breaking, and that something breaking would lead to recession and further uh, bear market. The other other side of the coin was interest rate hiking would lead to slowing inflation. The markets were trading off of inflation. And if inflation came down, then a bull market could resume. It looks like for those two competing ideas, uh, the bulls are at least winning the day today. And from the market's perspective, inflation has come down dramatically from around 10% last year, uh, summer of last year to uh, around 4% now. And, uh, and as a result of that, markets have really rebounded. The other, the other side to the equation uh, starting this year was just the issues in commercial real estate. And I think we've seen that occur specifically in office this year. And what we started hearing early in, in 2023 was the ticking time bomb of commercial mortgage-backed securities and trillions of dollars of, uh, of uh, mortgages or bonds that were going to be coming due uh, in the next three years and refinancing those at lower loan to values at lower values of real estate and at higher interest rates and how that would essentially blow up the real estate market. Uh, REITs so far this year are actually uh, performing quite well. And really the area that's been of most concern has been office and office uh, represents a small percentage of of the overall real estate bucket. So let's talk about uh, those two things, Greg. First, just the market in general, first half of this year. And second, sort of that ticking time bomb issue and, and how it relates to the real estate market in general. Well, from from a market standpoint, obviously, it's been a good first half of the year. There's been, we've talked about this at length, but there's been seven stocks really that have been driving the performance of the S&P 500. Um, those are the big techs, tech names like Apple, Tesla, NVIDIA, et cetera. The economy is, is the economic numbers that you referenced uh, earlier in terms of the revision that took place, the, the economy, the GDP actually grew by 2%, which surprised me. The revision was up from 1.2% to 2%. Uh, so it's a huge revision on a relative basis, not a big revision on a percentage basis. But it surprised me that just by virtue of everything that the Fed has done over the last 15 to 18 months from a, from a rate increase standpoint, it's crazy to me that the economy is still growing and people were talking about uh, the likelihood of a recession and a uh, hard landing and then a soft landing. 
And it looks like the, the higher likelihood scenario at this point in time is, is that we avoid recession. Of course, there's the potential that that we um, that the the uh, the fact that rates are high right now um, could ultimately trigger a recession. But it's just surprised me how resilient the U.S. economy has been and the global economy on the whole. Um, I, I, uh, I so it's first half of the year. It's pretty crazy. I as I as I get older uh, and I, I have young children, I, time is just really flying, and that's just not really anything market related or um, uh, economic related. But I really just can't believe that it's already halfway point through the year, um, and we're and in the in the last really the last since since COVID, so many th- it se- just seems like it's been th- we've been in a time warp. Um, I don't know if you feel this exact same way, um, but I just can't believe we're already halfway through 2023. We've gotten through the drudgery of 2022, and it looks like it's been, we're the economy's been resilient, market's been resilient, and uh, here we are, almost three years post COVID. It's crazy. Yeah, and I, and one thing I'll add to that is uh, there's been very strong calls for recession in the wake of COVID, and I, and I, a lot of it makes sense. I mean, there was trillions of dollars that were dumped onto the economy. Inflation got out of control. The Federal Reserve went on its its fastest rate hiking cycle in history, and then again, uh, economic growth is still resilient and in the aftermath of all of those things occurring. So it's pretty crazy to have been someone that said, no, um, you know, things are going to be working out as we're even in the aftermath of all of this, despite uh, all of the negative headlines saying the, the opposite of that. This is, this is an interesting uh, post on Barry Rootholtz's blog. He talks about um, just a real-time snapshot of the economy. He says, rising rates, falling savings, increased deficits, dubious GDP. Ever since the yield curve inverted and warnings of imminent recession filled the air, this is really sort of early 2022, um, the Philly Fed's map of state coincident indexes has provided a good real-time snapshot of the state of the economy. Friday's release, uh, this was last Friday, might have snuck by, but it's filled with upside surprises that are worth looking at. The overview is simple. Over the last three months, the coincident indexes for all 50 states have increased. Last month, indexes increased in 47 of 50 states, were flat in two states, Minnesota and Rhode Island, and fell in just one, Wisconsin. Other states that were softish, including New Jersey, Arkansas, and Kentucky. The idea here is that this is a national growth that is not, you know, is not subject to certain areas of the country. Everywhere around the country is still growing out of COVID and calls for recession are somewhat dubious at this point. Now things can change. And I think, um, if you follow the, the yield curve, uh, history, it takes about a year or two after a, an inverted yield curve to, to go into recession of the sample set there is only like seven or eight, uh, periods where the yield curve inverted, then, then, then went into recession a year or two later. So we're still into that that danger zone in the effect that a recession could happen. But all of the data that's come out this year has been upside surprises, better economic growth than anticipated. And so it's hard to see something dramatically changing in the back half of this year when everyone that's in the prediction game right now is still so bearish on markets and bearish on the economy. Yeah. And we talked about the major driver of the economy um, in terms of economic slowdown would be the Fed increasing rates. And if you look back at history, 
once the Fed is done raising rates, which who knows if they're actually done or not, the market is basically pricing and that they're going to raise one or two more times, then there's a cut cut that follows that typically. So we could be in a, in a more of an accommodative standpoint as it relates to the Fed. Right now, From a this is just looking at travel data. TSA checkpoint uh, travel numbers, seven-day average, uh, was this most recent week was 2.6 million U.S. airline travelers per day over the last week, the most since July of 2019. So if you just look around and look at restaurants and airports, et cetera, the economy looks like it's doing pretty well. Um, obviously, like you mentioned, and we I talked about just briefly a minute ago, things can change pretty quickly. But it does look like there there could be this, the stage could be setting setting as it relates to the Fed slowing down. And as it relates to just the the overall durability of the U.S. economy to this point for an economic growth um, above and beyond what we've seen, and and it's really it's pretty crazy to me that like a, we just talked about a second ago that we did continue to grow at a two percent clip, and um, and it really just it shows the strength in the U.S. consumer, the U.S. economy. Um, so we're still in obviously in danger zone. There are some cracks like you had mentioned in in uh, commercial office real estate. Airbnb revenue, in particular, that that facet of um, that was like a post-COVID uh, type or COVID type of boom, where where people were buying Airbnbs and making a bunch of money. This is the Airbnb revenue collapse, top ten cities percent, percentage change in revenue per available listing from May twenty second to May twenty uh, May May twenty twenty two to May twenty twenty three. Um, Seaverville, Tennessee, is down fifty percent. Phoenix, Arizona, Austin, Texas, down 50%. There's some areas that they had these tremendous booms in Airbnbs. Um, uh, after COVID, people, I guess, are going to hotels more. Or pe- people aren't going to these sort of drive to destinations. Um, so there are some certain cracks where, where there's some suffering. I think re- residential real estate is another area that, um, especially in New Orleans, we, I can see it firsthand that there's a lot of for, for sale signs and not a whole lot of movement. There was actually an article in the Wall Street Journal how people are avoiding fixer-uppers right now just because of the costs associated with renovating um, inflation on the on labor and um, on materials for building and renovating places is pretty high right now. Um, so there are definitely some cracks, but again, the, the overall economy the U.S. consumer has really been strong throughout all of this. Things can change quickly, but that things can also change. Qu- the the sort of narrative of a recession happening or an impending recession that can also change quickly. And we could also the, the sort of narrative narrative could shift from a um, a relatively few number of stocks that's driving the overall market to a broad based uh, market recovery. And I think there's a there's a reasonable probability of both those. But the more time that goes by. The latter, meaning the the stock broad-based stock recovery and a strong U.S. Uh, economic recovery and ex- potential expansion, I think that that the probability of that's growing. Yeah, and I'll just say another thing that we're going to be looking at for the back half of this year, and we've talked about it a bunch uh, for the last, or really the the first half of this year as it relates to inflation, is inflation in rents or. The other side of that is deflation in rents. And this is just posted by uh, Chris Salviati, who's at Apartment List. He said, we just hit a, a major milestone for the rental market. Year-over-year rent growth fell to zero this month. The rent market has slowed considerably over the last one and a half years. And today, new leases are signing for the same price as they did a year ago. And it goes in to say that 
uh, inventory is on the rise. Our national vacancy index also logged a milestone this month, hitting 7.2%, which matches the peak availability from the height of the pandemic. Um, the number of multifamily units under construction, so apartment buildings, is at a record high and completions are trending up. Renters have more options today than they have in, had in several years. They're gaining some leverage over landlords, a major role reversal from most of the pandemic. And so one thing to look at, and we've talked about coming up to um, today's podcast, is that inflation number reversing and rental growth being a big component of over a third of inflation cpi right uh, ha- having that be start to be negative the back half of this year and, and what happens uh with federal reserve policy as it relates to declining inflation and potentially deflation and, and that's where i see the biggest risk right now to disrupting economic growth as being overly hawkish and overly uh, tight from the federal reserve standpoint with a wave of deflationary numbers coming out of specifically rent growth. We're seeing it in real-time data now. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. During the pandemic, rents were growing at like something like 26% in, on, on an inflationary basis. And so the fact that they're coming down, I think has a big, that's a potential big driver. And I definitely think that I agree with you 100%. The big risk that we face is the Fed basically having an unforced error being too hawkish and driving us into the sort of brick wall, so to speak. Hopefully, they come to their senses and chill out soon. Um, they did pause, but there, it looks like they're going to raise. And the, and the path forward looks like they're probably going to uh, pause after one or two more hikes and then cut either at the end of this year or beginning of next year. Um, I wanted to sh- I want to shift gears, and I, I saw this uh, article that, that Ben Carlson wrote about the S and P 500 annual return distribution from 1928 to 2022. Did, Doug, Doug, did you know that? Uh, since 1928, the U.S. stock market has been more likely to be up 20% or more in a given year than it is to have finished the year with a loss. Yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> I, I, I did not know that, but um, it's just unbelievable that. And and then you see all these Wall Street uh, strategists calling for a 10% return. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, or a ne- or a negative return, and it's like they're just you're betting on low probability events, and you would think that people that are strategists and statisticians would understand that um, that sort of stance is is extremely low probability. I think Morgan Housel once said this that they'd better off they'd be better off just calling for a 10% return every year and sort of turning a blind eye to it. But trying to be predictive is uh is is incredibly uh, difficult to do. And so yeah, that's a it's a crazy st- statistic. Yeah. So um We've, we're coming up on 4th of July, and um, there's nothing more American than baseball. Um, did you see uh, Shohei Otani's statistic from this past week? How amazing is this guy? Um, obviously, we, we're talking about like the Americana, but this is a Japanese baseball player. He went three for three with two home runs. This is against the Chicago White Sox this week. Three for three with two home runs, and he struck out 10 batters while allowing only one run. And the Angels beat the White Sox four to two. This guy might be the best baseball player ever. Yeah, I mean that is like especially in today's game. You had guys like Babe Ruth that were, uh, you know, two way players where they would they would pitch and and bat. Um, but I mean in today's game that that even I think baseball players would even admit that uh, he would be very subpar as a as a player in in the in the modern game. Having a guy like this be able to uh, be n- number one, the best 
slugger in the game, but number two, a top five pitcher is just unbelievable. I think you're right. Um, I think two of the best baseball players of all time are from Japan, him and, and Ichiro Suzuki. Yeah, that we talked about Ichiro on a, on a previous podcast, how he had basically accomplished everything. The, the, the people people always focus on these young startup guys and like Zuckerberg, et cetera, that was able to get a, become a billionaire by the time he was thirty. There's there, there's a whole slew of other individuals that were able to accomplish ama- amazing things later in life, like uh, like Croc from McDonald's, um, and uh, Ichiro in particular. Had because he became a pro uh, later in life in the MLB. He was playing in Japan previously. Was able to accomplish a tremendous amount as an older individual. Um, in 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 the line of um, the overall perception of the United States and the world, I found this chart to be very interesting. This is from the Pew Research Center about the the majority majorities in most countries that have a positive opinion of the United States. Um, and the percentage who have a positive opinion versus negative opinion. Japan, speaking of, of Japan, we're just talking about uh, Otani and Ichiro. 75% of Japanese have a positive opinion of the United States. If you look at the overall weightings, um, I found that it's the most interesting was Poland is like the big outlier. I guess that we're like the sort of protectorate um, of, of Poland against the uh, against their neighbor, Russia. Um, they're at like 93% of positive ratings. But the thing that surprised me the most was um, uh, Australia has very mixed views of the United States. I had no idea. Um, Japan has a very positive view. What, it, what was the what <laughs> It's 50-50. 50-50 think yeah. positively <laughs> and negatively of the, of the United States. Um, I think you could probably say the same of, of Americans' view of Australians. Right, so. <laughs> right back at you. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, there's sort of a difference between the, the political class and your everyday American. And I think people, um, I, people still look at American America as sort of the, uh, shining city on a, on a hill and coming from abroad, um, wanting to be here because you can make a life here and, and start over. And, uh, and I think that Americans sort of take that for granted. And so you go and look at places that have been under uh, authoritarian regimes, specifically Japan and Poland, and they understand what, what it's like to be under a dictatorship in recent past um, or under a you know, sort of a communist regime and, uh, and say, you know, look, the, the America has its problems, but I've experienced the alternative and it's much worse. So I think that that's uh, it's really interesting to see free societies have or somewhat free societies have negative views of America just from pop culture. And then you have uh, people that have actually dealt with some real issues like the Japanese and like the Polish. The Israelis too have, or, or yeah, the, the notably excluded from this list are, uh, Russia and China though. <laughs> right. Yeah. Iran. What is Iran's view? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I guess the, the, uh, so I don't know exactly where the Pew give us a, you know, give us a pretty, uh, narrow perspective of, I guess this is just countries that have <laughs> decently positive views of uh, the United States, but not, not no, notably not Iran or, um, or it's a very American, it's no, a very no, American no, research poll. Right. No, North Korea is not on here <laughs> either. Yeah, right. It's a, it's like a confirmation bias research poll. Only, only survey the people that like you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, the, basically, according to Pew, if you just if you just look at the countries that like us in the world, 
60% of the countries, uh, 60% of the people in those countries that have a positive viewpoint of the United States like us. Um, <laughs> yeah, certainly. 60% of the time it works right. every time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and speaking of, so the, Mexico has actually got a positive view of the United States. I think uh, Mexico and Canada have decently positive views because we, I guess they, we provide their, uh, they're, they don't have to spend so much on defense when you have like a, you know, a, a superpower as a neighbor. Um, well, I'll tell you this. I think Mexico is my big, my, uh, the big bet for the, the 20 the decade of the 2020s in terms of economic growth. And, um, you know, and, and that could lead to stock market growth. We've already seen a great stock market years from Mexico, but all of this reshoring that's occurring from, you know, China and Southeast Asia and coming, uh, back to the North American continent and specifically Mexico being a beneficiary of that. If they can figure out their crime and cartel problem, I think that that's a, a really interesting story to have all of these companies, specifically manufacturing company, companies saying, look, we can't rely upon um, you know, what we were doing prior to the pandemic. And, and so let's bring all of these, uh, these processes back to the mainland. And I think Mexico is going to be a big beneficiary of that. Yeah. And, and in particular, the demographic changes in the United States are pretty, pretty, uh, informative as well too. Like the United States, I believe has the most Spanish speakers of any country in the entire world, or maybe the most or second most. Yeah. It, it's really, yeah. So like, for example, Spain has, I don't know what the population of Spain is. It's like 40 million or something like that. The population of Mexico is like 70 million. But the United States, I think, is basically right above Mexico or is soon to be above Mexico from a, from a demographic change standpoint. But I do believe that the whole south of the border situation in terms of Mexico and Central America itself is not as important from an um, economic standpoint. But South America in particular has a lot of uh, potential because they're seemingly more accommodative to America um, than uh, China is. Um, and they have a ton of natural resources, so we could basically and cost of labor is not it's not materially different than in China. Exactly. So, on that same note, interestingly enough, the I saw this chart from uh, this is Bank of America Global Research. Mexico and U.S. is the largest air traffic country pair market in the world. We represent seventeen percent, seventeen and a half percent between those two countries of international air traffic uh, is between Mexico and the United States. The next one is um, U.S. and Canada. So obviously, we're, the United States is just this huge economic powerhouse. And you're right, we, the rest of the world does see us as the, as the light on the hill, so to speak, um, just because we, we're, the, we're the sort of uh, the center of the world from an economic standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, from a technology standpoint. But this it really shows in the data. So it goes U.S., Mexico, United States, but at seventeen and eight point eight percent. Canada, United States, at thirteen percent, and then it goes down from there to to Spain and the U.K., the U.A.E. and India, and then the U.K. and the U.S.A. So we, I, I think that there's the the more the I agree with your sort of prognosis um, that that's likely to that relationship will continue to be fostered between Mexico and the United States, just because it is such a close proximity and they're somewhat seemingly friendly, uh, nation, but they're, they have a tremendous amount of issues as we all know with their political class, um, stealing from their populace. And they have, uh, essentially like a sort of socialist bent, um, as well too. 
um, which a lot of Latin American countries have as, as well. It's just a common theme amongst their political landscape. But if if that continue if that relationship continues to fall to be fostered, they have a they're like the United States from like 20 years ago. And and interestingly enough, I saw this. So they have just their the age of their population is is um, is uh, young essentially. And then 20 years ago in the United States, that was the case as well too. But I saw this this headline from the New York Times: the U.S. population is older than it has ever been. New census data shows that the country's median age is now over 38. In 1980, it was 30. So Mexico is sort of like the way it was in the 80s in the United States. And if you wanted to make a bet on the 80s in the United States, it was a good bet. Um, but in the United States, we're getting a little bit more gray, as you and I are. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's the big story in the U.S. for the next uh, generation is basically the aging boomer generation and how to replace um, that population decline as, as boomers go by the wayside. And so... Um, the uh, I think there's you know the story of emerging markets and specifically sort of uh, democratic and rule of law friendly countries that have good population uh, demographics I think uh, is a good story for the next couple of decades and so trying to find that I think Mexico is going to be one of them. Agreed. So, but it's not all about Me- Mexico. Uh, we've already celebrated their Independence Day, uh, even though it's not really an Independence Day on May fifth. Cinco de Mayo, we had the United States Independence Day uh, on July 4th, which um, we hope you guys have a great time uh, celebrating the the, uh, the nation's birthday, essentially. Um, it's, I, I'm, like you guys have heard me say plenty of times, I'm proud to be an American. We're very fortunate to be, like what Warren Buffett said, that we all basically won the lottery being born here um, to two loving parents. Is that the, if you have those two conditions, you're born an American to two loving parents, you've basically won the lottery. Uh, and I firmly believe that is the, the case as well, too, because as I've seen um, in other countries, it's just people at if you're born in another country and to not you don't have two loving parents, it's, you're just the eight balls against you to begin with. Um, thank God that we're Americans and uh, I hope you guys have a great time spending time with your family over the 4th of July weekend. It's going to be hot in New Orleans. Um, heat index today on Thursday, uh, the 29th of June is 120 degrees. So in the southeast part of the United States, it's brutal. Um, but I hope you guys can catch some shade and grill some hot dogs and hamburgers with your family. Enjoy some fireworks and all the, the good celebratory things that that um, we do on the 4th of July um, and we will be back next week um, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Laying Out Podcast uh, please give us 5 stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening and we'll see you soon, thanks Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.
The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.